millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Life is made up of many gorgeous moments. Cherish them all, big and small, with Blue Nile. Whether it's for yourself or a loved one, Blue Nile's unrivaled selection of expertly crafted fine jewelry and statement pieces help make all your moments sparkle. Blue Nile's experts are on hand to guide you, and their diamond guarantee ensures you get the highest quality at the best price. Celebrate a life well lived in the most radiant way and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. We live in a world where the news is at our fingertips, where we're one click or swipe away from the latest headlines. But how often do we stop swiping and scrolling and just listen? It's the difference between knowing what's in the headlines and understanding how it got there. I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take, Al Jazeera's daily news podcast, where we bring you the context and the people behind the global stories that matter. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, quick note before we start the show. If this show or any of our podcasts are a part of your life, they can be a better part of your life because uh, you can get ad-free versions of them, and they will get better the more uh, that people support them. Click the link in the show notes or go to canadalandshow.com slash join. And really, it's kind of a no-brainer. It's five bucks a month to get ad-free versions and to support the podcast that you listen to. And it happens in just moments. It'll just install that premium ad-free feed right on your podcasting app. Go do it. Desmond Cole. Activist, journalist, best-selling author of The Skin We're In, A Year of Black Resistance and Power, joins me from Toronto. Hey, Des. Hey, Jesse. Desmond, today we're going to talk about cancel culture. In the words of Margaret Wente, those who cannot learn from history are doomed to repeat it. Pretty sure she said that. <laughs> also, was Canada's worst mass shooter ever an undercover agent for the RCMP? McLean's Magazine seems to think so. Glad to have you here. Thank you. This episode of Shortcuts is brought to you by Jennifer Van Overbeek, Garrett Wesselink, Brian Gettler, Alexandra Fisher, Brody Noga, Josie Hughes, Gary Dobko, and Adrian. Hi, my name is Adrian, and I'm an actor living in Toronto. I support Canada Land not just for their great programming, but because of their commitment to producing that programming in an ethical way. I appreciate their transparency episodes, uh, which outline how they're trying to improve their business practices, hiring ethically, paying people for their work. And that was something that I wanted to contribute to. Keep up the great work. Thanks a lot. Desmond, a lot of people have been canceled as the vernacular goes. And I'll tell you something, and we'll talk about this. Some of these people I have mixed feelings about. Should they be canceled? Is it fair? And it gets it gets murky and complicated. And then there's Margaret Wente. I have no misgivings. I have no problem with Margaret Wente being... Uh, like it, I almost am glad that this happened, that through some series of accidents, follies, and ignorance, I don't know what, Massey College for some reason, decided to name her a, a fellow, a member of the Quadrangle Society. They decided to bring her into this academic institution. And very predictably, there was an outcry, both because she is a plagiarist and because she is a climate change denier and because she peddles bad science about racist scientific ideology that has been, uh, I think, just conclusively disproven by the scientific community. In any event, all of this played out pretty quickly, and Massey College, I think we're about to tell her, you know, uh, we rescind the invitation when uh, Margaret Wente herself said, the accusations against me are false and outrageous, and my record speaks for itself. And then she withdrew her uh, desire to be a member. What did you think? When it comes to canceling people, Jesse, I, I think um, English is a strange language, you know, because we say cancel 
when it sounds to me like what's happening is Margaret Wente is facing consequences for the decisions that she's made in her life. That's not being canceled to me. I've actually yet to see a white person who was effectively canceled. Margaret Wente is going to now have some platform somewhere else to tell us about how what happened to her was so unfair and to continually engage in the grievance politics that she's been so good at for decades, right? But she's not canceled. You and I are talking about her. She still has all of the money that she made writing articles that appear to have been stolen from other people's work. Like, how canceled is she? If she wants to get a job somewhere else where some other group of, you know, unthoughtful people will take her in uncritically and try to big up her apparent career of journalism, she can probably get another job. You can never cancel people like Margaret Wente, but sometimes they have to face consequences for the choices that they've made. And I think that that's actually something different. I want to say that this actually happened because of the courage of people finally deciding to speak up against Margaret Wente, uh, chief among them Alyssa Trotz, the director of Women and Gender Studies, director of undergraduate Caribbean studies at New College at U of T. She was willing to resign her own positions at Massey College, right, in order to say you bringing on Margaret Wente with all of her baggage is offensive is uncritical, is against academia. And if you want her in your group, I don't want to be part of it. That principled stand by a black woman set off a chain of dozens and then hundreds and then thousands of other people joining the conversation and also saying, we don't want to be affiliated with anything having to do with Margaret Wente. And other people started to resign their positions, other black faculty at uh, Massey decided it's time also to step back. So I give those faculty and Alyssa Trotz, I give everybody credit for stepping forward and saying, we don't want to be associated with this person. And we're willing to pay a professional price for it ourselves in order to show how unethical her selection to that fellow's group was. So I think that's how it's done. And I give a lot of credit to Alyssa Trotz. I do too, but I have questions. I mean, Massey College's response to this seemed to suggest that they had no idea. They were taken completely unaware that Margaret Wente was a controversial figure, that she had a history of plagiarism. So I think we need to know what happened within this institution leading to this. And I mean, you know, I was remarking when it happened, like, this was so avoidable for Massey College. Like, they could simply have included, nominated, invited anyone else, somebody who doesn't have multiple proven instances of plagiarism in their record, not to mention junk science, climate change denial, junk racist science. I mean, why fuck with Margaret Wente? I, I just don't understand it at all. To your other argument, Desmond... To your other argument, I mean, yes, I'm sold completely. I mean, first of all, cancel culture is an imprecise term that maybe is uh, not even useful anymore. But I need this, man. Like, there were, it's not, I, I don't know, Margaret, when you have anything against her, but it, it's just the origins of Canada Land come from a time when, like, I thought I was losing my mind. Like, Margaret Wente was obviously a plagiarist, and somehow the rules didn't touch her. You know, th there was no consequence for this at the Globe and Mail. I mean, she was reprimanded in some secret way. She went on to do it again. And people say, like, oh, you know, the social justice mob is, is nitpicking on this technicality of plagiarism with Margaret Wente because they don't like her politics. No, those things are not detached. The fact that she had to steal and kind of cheat and break the rules of discourse, of writing, in order to make these bad arguments tells you what those arguments are worth. And the fact that she was able to ride off into the sunset and leave the globe on her own terms was like an injustice that was never settled. So watching her get canceled to whatever degree she was canceled and publicly humiliated in this case, which she was... And say, I stand by my record. Oh, really? Seriously? You want to refer to your record? I took a bit of catharsis in that. It seemed like there was some kind of a reckoning that like we are all playing from some kind of shared rule book of like the basic rules that apply to like a 19-year-old undergrad student when it comes to plagiarism that would get you kicked out of your university might touch someone like Margaret Wente. Well, listen, let's not say cancel culture, as I mentioned. Let's just say consequences. Because the idea of cancel culture conjures up this notion of an unreasonable by the way like you mentioned that they'll call this an online mob it's incredible how a bunch of people on the internet have more power than media corporations that you know there's like three or four telecom giants in canada 
But somebody on the internet somehow saying something has more power than all of them, has more power now than universities do. No, none of the people who are talking online have any money. They don't own corporations. They don't own shares in other corporations. They're not wealthy, but somehow they have more. It's, it's just that whole conjuring of this culture of canceling people. No, call it what it is. It's called consequences for the choices that you decide to make in life. Calling it cancel culture is to make up something of a phenomenon that says that people who have the ability to speak their mind through social media platforms now have a disproportionate amount of power. And of course, that's nonsense. But yeah, there are a lot of people responsible for knowing who Margaret Wente was and what her record was when she either submitted her own name to this process or somebody nominated her. And I don't put that on Alyssa Trotz. I think that a lot of people have to share a lot of responsibility for wanting Margaret Wente to be part of this group, for celebrating the fact uncritically that she was going to be part of this group, and then having to backtrack and say, well, we didn't know anything about her. Why in the world would you hire her if you don't know about her journalism career? So I don't actually believe that excuse. I think people didn't care about Margaret Wente's racism, the accusations of plagiarism over and over again. And quite frankly, just her laziness as a troll journalist who really added very little to Canadian discourse. I just think people didn't care about that. Not that they didn't know. You know, a little from column A and a little from column B. I think that uh, they probably were, how could you not be aware on some level? But if you're telling me that an elite Canadian institution was wildly out of touch with a figure's reputation, their record, their transgressions, and was more plugged into the fact that this was a member of the establishment, a member of a shared elite, and they prioritized that, and they were absolutely surprised and taken aback when the public response was as forceful and loud as it was, I believe that too. You know, I believe both of those things. Don't get me wrong. I, I totally think that they were shocked by the backlash, but I don't think that they were shocked to learn that Margaret Wente is trash. Like, I agree. I agree. They were just fine with the trash. Yeah. I mean, maybe they didn't interrogate it as closely or like you say, that it, maybe they just didn't care. I will also push back a little bit like, yes, there are people who are critics of this so-called cancel culture who describe it as this mob phenomenon. But there are people who participate in it who also use that term and say, you know, isn't it about time that so-and-so gets canceled and let's cancel this person? And I don't mind saying that uh, there is a shifting of power. Like, I don't want to degrade the amount of power that a few people on the Internet have. And I, I'm actually, in many cases, um, I think it's a good thing because the power that people have on Twitter or on social media comes often from them being right about something, having receipts about something, uh, the ability to have a voice that they didn't used to have. That is a new power vector, and it's now coming into conflict with old Canada establishment power vector. And the exchanges are like, they're pretty dramatic. You know, what happened to Jessica Mulrooney, Desmond, you know, and this is somebody who like, people like to call her like, oh, she's like kind of like a reality TV person, like one of these people who's famous for being famous, like, but it's not like a Kardashian, like she's just famous for being a Mulrooney. Like, people don't even like, you know, John Doyle was writing about this. Like, people didn't even like Ben Mulroney when he first became a TV presenter. In Canada, you can actually have, like, a job in the public based on your kind of private political capital, based on your last name. And in any event, I'll, you know, to summarize this case, I'm sure almost everybody knows this by now, but Sasha Exeter, who's an Instagram influencer, this is all kind of new stuff to me, she went public with uh, this exchange whereby she was just making a public call for people with big platforms to support Black Lives Matter. She didn't name names, but Jessica Mulroney was sure that her, you know, I guess friend Sasha Exeter was calling her and calling her out. And she privately back channeled her and said something to the effect of, you think that your voice matters. It only matters if you're nice and say nice things. Well, I'm going to ruin your career. And she sort of implied, I'm going to call the brands that uh, sponsor you and I'm going to cost you your livelihood for this. And then Sasha Exeter exposed that as well. In the fallout to this, Jessica Mulroney may not be canceled, but her appearances on Good Morning America were canceled. Her CTV show was canceled. Pretty much her position in the media at this moment was canceled. And that did not seem to be enough. And it also seemed pretty awkward because Ben Mulroney is still going on the air on CTV with his two shows. So he just stepped forward and said, I'm going to make some space I'm going to step back from one of my shows and uh, I'll half cancel myself. What did you make? I mean, you know, I think it was absolutely true that uh, Jessica Mulroney was, uh, whether she knew it or not, exerting white privilege 
in the threats that she made to Sasha Exeter, who's a black woman. But it was also just evidence that Jessica Mulroney is a bit of a dick and just does not understand or didn't care that she was behaving like a dick. I think that as with what we were just talking about regarding Margaret Wente, this is not really a case, again, of online phenomenon leading to somebody having to step back from a position or losing a job or something like that. What it is, is that the constituencies that matter to these institutions are speaking up. So in the case of Margaret Wente, it was hundreds of current and former students, teachers at U of T, faculty at U of T, donors to U of T. That's the reason why Margaret Wente is gone, not because of some faceless internet mob. And in the same way, the people who are critical of Jessica Mulrooney are people who consume things that she puts out. If Ben Mulrooney got pressure to step back from his positions, that's because people who watch him on TV are speaking out. It's not some faceless mob. It's actually the consumers. This is why media organizations hate it when people go after their sponsors, right? Somebody mm -hmm. says something on your network that is offensive or degrading to people in public that is racist. And what they do is they go to the sponsors and they say, why do you pay for this racist content? Why do you pay for this sexist or transphobic content? And we're not going to support you as advertisers. In fact, we're going to expose your brand as supporting this unless you step back. That's called the marketplace. That's called capitalism. That's called the invisible hand of these choices that are being made like this is isn't this what everybody wanted us to subscribe to and to tell us that this is what's governing our lives now and that these individual market choices that improve everybody's like collective benefit all that crap is actually what is biting people in their butt and what they're now claiming is some invisible mob if ben mulrooney for example wanted to say something more critical about jessica mulrooney because that was the issue then you know you say something but to just say I'm stepping back from these platforms to make some kind of unclear point, and as Vicky Machama um, pointed out, making the same amount of money around that you were making before, not really giving up anything, what's the purpose of it? This is often a thing that white men in powerful places do. And they don't do it until after that pressure from their own viewers, their own supporters, their own constituents has really been put to bear on them. I think that these conversations really actually need to center around the fact that the supporters of people like Jessica Mulrooney and Margaret Wente are the ones who are giving them the backlash. And that's why they're listening. They're not listening to people that they don't know on the Internet. They're listening to their own sponsors, advertisers, friends and supporters who are like, oh, I didn't know that you had that part of you. It's really ugly and nasty. Fix yourself. I agree. And I think that these negotiations are taking place between these personalities, the companies they work for, the sponsors of that content, and finally the public who this stuff is supposed to be for in the first place. For a very long time, all of these negotiations took place with the public having kind of some weird, tangential, distant, like ratings kind of mattered, but they didn't always matter. And, you know, John Doyle writing in The Globe about the Mulroonies talk about, uh, he talks about a history of the Mulroonies using back channels to pressure the media, not even like a good natured criticism or mockery of Ben Mulrooney was tolerated. You get a call from Brian Mulrooney. People are afraid of the Mulrooneys. They, they are bullies to the media. I think what's changed is some of this is coming out and these negotiations are happening. And I do agree with you that when there are consequences, even though they came out in terms of a negotiation between the marketplace, the sponsor, the companies, the mob gets blamed. Social justice warriors get blamed. And I think that takes us to the, the last uh, cancellation, uh, arguably, that we're going to discuss today, which is Wendy Mesley. And that is a story that you. Hey, wait, have... I'm sorry, but I have to. I have to even interrupt you before you get going. How did Wendy Mesley get canceled? This is exactly why I don't like this terminology. I know you have to introduce what she did, but go ahead, and then I'm going to push back again on this idea that a white woman who acknowledged that she said something racist is somehow now being canceled rather than being held accountable for saying racist shit. But please go ahead. I'm situating this within the discourse that it exists and within our vernacular, within our culture. Like, I'm not conjuring up, uh, I'm not uh, inventing this term right now. And no, what, what, I'm pushing back on your use of it. You didn't invent it, but I think that if somebody else wants to say Wendy Mesley got canceled, we might rightfully point out to that person that if a person says something racist, they have to be held accountable. We can't just shoehorn it into this vernacular of the public that everybody likes to use, which is actually inaccurate and misleading. 
but I'm interrupting you from introducing what happened with Wendy. So please. No, I think you're making a good point, but I, I'm not going to defend the idea that Wendy Mesley was canceled because I don't have a clue if she was canceled. CBC hasn't told us yet. Even in the most specific use of that, was her show canceled? We don't know that yet. We don't know what she said. And what your public letter pointed out is that how can we even discuss this? Uh, we only have one account of this that came from Mesley about the context that she said that she was quoting someone who was going to be on the panel. You were one of the people scheduled to be on that panel. Uh, so there's some uh, level of, and I think what what was suggested in your letter is like, is she putting the blame for this epithet, whatever it was? I think I think I know what it was, but there's no clarity on that. She's sort of like shifting that into the the words of one of her guests. Which one? What did they say? Let's vet this claim that she made. And let's have some clarity on this. So that's the first part where this is murky and it inhibits us having any kind of a real conversation about it. We don't know what the heck happened. And then the consequences. So they took her off the air for the rest of her season. I heard an account from somebody at the CBC that she was seen clearing out her desk. Somebody from the CBC was editing her Wikipedia page to suggest that her show is canceled. I don't want to minimize something here. Whether we call it canceled or not, I think there's a very good chance, Desmond, that uh, Wendy Mesley's career is going to end in like this cloud of shame around something she said, which she has acknowledged she should not have said. And I don't think there's any disagreement amongst reasonable people that she should not have said it. But I think there is a question about what should the consequence be? So let's call it consequence culture. And this was not negotiated with the public. This was an internal thing of the CBC making its own determination, which might still be in progress, about what to do with Wendy Mesley. What do you think the right consequence is if what she said about how this happened is how it happened? Okay. Can I backtrack and give everybody the proper context of how I'm involved in this? Just a tiny slice of little context here. So I got invited a couple weeks ago to go on Wendy's show to talk to her as a guest on a panel of journalists, black journalists, who are going to be talking about what? The lack of black representation and voice in Canadian media. Irony is truly dead, Jesse Brown. It's truly dead and buried because in a panel that was supposed to be about the lack of black people in media, in upper areas of media, on TV, on radio, in print, all that, the host of the show, Wendy Mesley, was preparing for the show with her own staff, and she says that she said a word that she should never have said. Everybody with an imagination can guess what word she probably said. That's fine. Wendy Mesley suggested in her note that she was simply repeating one of the Black journalists that she was supposed to interview on the show when she said that forbidden word, that she didn't just think of it out of her own accord right? That she was just repeating somebody else. So Wendy Mesley was singing along to Jay-Z in the car and Jay-Z said that word. And then Wendy said it and was like, no, 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 guys, I'm only saying it because Jay-Z said it, right? So that's the explanation that she's trying to give us. And I think that that makes her a really embarrassing human being. What a terrible explanation, but then even worse. And the reason why I wrote a letter I was one of the guests on that show, Jesse. So yes, she is suggesting that she might've been, for example, repeating me saying what she calls an unacceptable word and that, you know, she didn't think of it on her own, putting this on people who were supposed to be guests on her show to talk about the exclusion of black voices in media. Why the hell do you think we're excluded when this is how we're treated? You say a word that you're not supposed to say as a white woman, and then you put it immediately back on us. Why do you think we don't work in media because of treatment like this? Why do you think people are afraid to speak out when they hear somebody saying something like this in a media workplace? Because there's so-called investigation and there's notions of her being canceled rather than her being held to account for what she said. And in terms of consequences to your question, first of all, the idea that Wendy Mesley could hold herself accountable for saying that and just leave is unfathomable to people, isn't it? Just like the idea of Justin Trudeau, after all of his blackface photos surfaced, just being like, you know, I wanted to keep this away from the public, but now that it's come out, I don't have enough credibility to continue, and I'm out. Like, that is unfathomable to people, isn't it? That you would hold yourself accountable for the actions that you say you understand were wrong. But the game here is that Wendy is apologizing, just as Trudeau did, to actually get to move on with it, to say, now you all have to shut up because I said I was sorry. I didn't tell you what I was sorry even for, 
but I lowered myself. I, the righteous and upstanding person, lowered myself to your level to apologize. So now leave me alone and shut up and get on with it. It is CBC's ongoing shame that Wendy Mesley continues to work for them. It's their ongoing shame that they have to have an investigation into her racism that they can't tell us anything about. This is their problem. Whatever they want to do with Wendy Mesley is their problem now. She is a disgrace. We all see that she is a disgrace. I am so grateful to the Canadian Association of Black Journalists and the hundreds of journalists, writers, and media folks who signed my letter asking Wendy Mesley to account for her own behavior. If she doesn't, that's her shame ongoing. And if CBC doesn't do it for her, that's their shame ongoing. I am tired as a black person of having to be born again on top of everything else with figuring out what should happen to Wendy. Let the people who are supporting Wendy figure out what to do with her and they can wear all of her racism and shame for whatever comes next. Desmond, you've got a lot of moral authority on this and I'm going to present you another perspective on this, and I think it's important. Okay. First of all, this is this is a difficult, I don't want to put myself in the position of like, I'm going to defend Winnie Mesley because I don't know what she did. Like, if she had a history of saying this, if somebody brought to her attention, when you do this, you're hurting people on your staff, stop doing it, and she persisted, then I have a completely different take on this. Or if what she's saying isn't true, it's unvetted, I have a different perspective on this. But I'm going to give her some benefit of the doubt here. This is your choice to engage in this conversation. It's not your role to figure out what to do with Wendy Mesley, but this is a chat show where we talk about these things. And so I'm asking you to, you know, participate in that exercise if you care to. I'm a journalist and I have a conception of what happens in a newsroom. I can perceive of a situation whereby in preparing for a panel, you're going through your guests' writing and their arguments and you're trying to figure out what questions to ask them. And if we take her account, we give her benefit of the doubt that this is how it happened, I can imagine her making an honest mistake where she should have said the code word that uh, we deal with words. We have to be able to be exact about our words. So we say the N word. And I can perceive and I have room to say, okay, that is a human mistake. It is not without consequence. It is not without impact. It might hurt somebody. I'm not saying let's forgive and forget. But I can conceive of an instance where in order for her to go through that editorial process, that word might have come out of her lips and her regret and her, her apology. I'll also say, look, maybe that's genuine. So do I think I'm not a big fan of Wendy Mesley. I don't have anything against her either. But I, I know that she is a journalist who for decades woke up every day and her job was to talk with people about what's happening in this country. I think that if a career like that were to end completely and for her to be dismissed as a disgrace a racist disgrace, and that's how decades of, of, of service as a public broadcaster were to end because of that one incident. If it happened, as she said, first of all, it has a chill effect on other newsrooms where people have to have some room to be wrong. And I'll tell you something else, and this goes back to the, uh, to the Mulroney case. Lainey Gossip, Elaine Louis, who's a co-host of Ben Mulroney, she wrote a great piece that went viral about Jessica Mulroney and her use of white privilege. And then, because she was talking about how she's afraid of the Mulroonies and how she's critical of this racism. Her own anti-black comments from the past came up in the conversation. And she said, who, and people said, who are you to decry anyone else's racism? Who are you when you've got this in your past? Now, Desmond, I don't think that there was anything wrong at all with bringing up her past. And I don't think that there's anything wrong when we at Canada Land criticize other organizations, and people bring up things that have happened here. I think that that's absolutely right, that that should come up. We should answer for those things. But Elaine Louis was able to apologize, recognize, and engage in a discussion about mistakes she's made in the past, and uh, it seems like she can move on without losing. I mean, you might say it's no big deal that these people's shows are canceled. Those are just consequences speaking. But people really do care about their careers. They really do care about what they've built for themselves. And the fact that she was able to absorb that criticism and move on seemed to me to be the right way forward. And because I, you know, I'm not going to cancel myself, I can sustain and say, okay, these criticisms that I'm getting, I will acknowledge them. I will accept them and talk with you about it. But if you work at the CBC, you're gagged, right? Wendy Mizzley's not allowed, her union, the organization, and there's no negotiation with the public. And it seems quite possible that that's it for her. 
And I think that the, the impact of that and the part that maybe you would take an interest in is that means that people are going to be afraid to call out behavior when others are acting in a racist way because they're going to be afraid that they themselves, as soon as you shine a light on somebody else, somebody's going to shine a light on you. And if that means you're going to lose your job, that might be a consequence that people are not willing to take in order to advocate and be an ally. Okay. You have served up a six-course meal here, and I'm going to try as best I can to address a lot of things that you've just said. Okay. First of all, uh, you said that it's possible that Wendy Mesley could be dismissed as a racist disgrace. She's a racist disgrace whether she gets dismissed or not. That's my opinion, and it's not really about the consequences. It's about the harm done to Black people. And if there's anything I want people to take away from these conversations, it is exactly that. Whether we are talking about a police officer being held to account for killing a black person or a white woman in a newsroom being held to account for saying racist things, anti-black things, it's not actually about whether or not they face consequences in the court of law or the court of public opinion. All that is actually just skating right over the pain that we have to experience as black people every single time that this happens. That's actually what this is about. It's about the fact to now pick up on another point that you've just alluded to, that the people who are most afraid in a shop like Wendy's are not the Wendy's, okay? The Karens out here get to say everything that they want to say. You know who's afraid? The people who want to report them, Jesse. And you know why they're afraid? Not because their own racist past or something that they said that it was a microaggression or something is going to be brought up, but because as a white anchor who's been on TV for 40 years, Wendy has all the power in that situation as the face on TV, as the host, as the star that is too precious to be replaced even when she says that word. She's the one with the power and the people who would seek to report her don't have that power. They're scared for their job. They're scared for their job for reporting the racism outright. Forget about anything beyond that. It's not safe, especially if you're a black person or another person of color in Canadian media to report somebody like Wendy Mesley for racism because your job will probably be more at risk than hers will. She has more protection than you do. They're invested in Wendy in a way that they might not be in a person of color staffer, a black staffer, a black intern for just being like, hey, I heard this thing and it was wrong. Think about that. People need to think about who's really in the position of power and authority here. If Wendy Mesley can just accidentally say that word in a meeting and it's an inadvertent and accidental mistake, Jesse, you might say that, but why would we not believe that she would say, do that on the air? And then I guess we'll be having an argument about whether or not a CBC host who says that word accidentally or repeating somebody else on the air should keep their job too, right? Or if they should face any consequences, or as you were saying, if they should be canceled. Is that how we're going to have these conversations? If you're a professional, you're not just accidentally saying that word, Jesse. That's the reason that she's getting paid the big bucks and being put on TV. So yeah, I'm not really afraid of her being held to account for saying that around anybody, whether it was in public or not, because it's not, if we're going to say it's unacceptable, it has to mean something. That kind of behavior has to be unacceptable. And like I said, the person who's doing it, if we live in a truly accountable world, can start to explore the harm that they have caused and hold themselves accountable. That's actually what needs to happen so that the person doesn't do it in the future, that they understand their own racist behavior and hold themselves accountable, not that we impose something upon them. And then let me also say, Jesse, the idea that this is Wendy's first time around with whatever word she wasn't supposed to say is so rich and not the idea that she just feels comfortable saying whatever the heck she wants to at work because there are no consequences for it. I don't know a lot of people who accidentally say that word the one time and haven't said it other times, Jesse. That's my experience. And a lot of other black people will attest to the fact that you don't actually hear people just blurting out racist stuff by accident. Rob Ford, oh, I was in a drunken stupor. That's why I call black people the N-word. White people love that mythology, don't they? That this word can just be blurted out and then there's unfair consequences consequences and it would be so sad to see somebody dismissed over this. I don't buy it. I don't buy that you're just having it slip out. And if that's the kind of person you are, you could do it on the air. You could do it in front of a thousand black people and you would ask for the same forgiveness, but it's not acceptable. 
You have to be accountable for what comes out of your mouth as a flipping journalist in this country. Isn't that your job? Isn't that your job? That's your job, ain't it? You said she has no record. You're expecting people who have no power over this person, who work in a shop that tolerates racism, to come out in front of everybody and tell on somebody like Wendy Mesley so that you have a record of her racism. And you're saying that if people haven't done that, then that record of her doing this before doesn't exist. I think that you should use your own sources, Jesse, at Canada Land, and you should talk to the people that talk to you, not just at CBC, but around Canadian media. And you should ask them if the N-word slipping out is a rare thing that happens in Canadian media shops. You should ask them if people saying a thing that a black woman said five minutes earlier, not giving her credit for it, right? And then taking her idea and just repeating it to the board meeting as if it was their own. Ask people that you talk to who work in media if that is a rare occurrence and a strange thing that happens. But I was supposed to go on TV to talk about the fact that, yeah, we're not in the boardroom, we're not in the executive room, we're barely on TV, most of the columnists are white. And I didn't even get to have that conversation with Wendy Mesley because she said something racist. And here we are arguing about all of these things when black people can't get in the door. So you wanna know how I feel? Like it's just insulting on its core that I can't go on TV to have a conversation about the state of Canadian media for black people. Jesse, do you know that when, as I said in my letter, when Wendy said her nonsense that she's now apologized for and removed herself or they removed her from that show, they didn't tell me, Jesse, what had happened. They let me go on the air, Jesse, as a black person under Wendy Mesley's banner to just talk about you know, diversity in the media for a few minutes. And they didn't give me the opportunity to say the host of this show said something that was anti-Black. Here's what she said. We would like to give you the respect, Desmond, of saying that we're sorry, and that if you don't want to come on the show, thank you very much for your time. We still appreciate you, and we wanted to give you this option. I was not given that option. I'm not treated like a human being in Canadian media. That's what the problem is. We are not treated as human. And everybody wants to skate over our pain to have these debates about ethics of journalism and fairness. And what about the next time somebody says that? And meanwhile, we're all just getting stepped on. I wanted to go on a show and talk about the state of Canadian media. And I'm here talking to you because the person who hosted that show said something that she won't account for. You try to step aside from it. And then people call you a snitch. Like, should people tell on people like Wendy Mesley at all if this is the consequences that they're going to face? I don't know what people expect of us having to work in these racist environments. The pressure's on us not to say anything because our job's more at stake. But you asked me a lot there. The racism speaks for itself. It's in every action that we try to take in order to address it. It repeats itself over and over again, and we're tired of it. So I'm not worried about the next white person who slips up so-called in the newsroom. I'm worried about the fact that we can't even get a job and eat and support ourselves and, you know, maybe even do some of the things that we love or are passionate about in this journalism landscape. That's what I'm mad about. Desmond, there's so much pain in this and you describe so well, like this, the labor and the toll that it takes. I don't want to lose sight of, I think, the, the headline of what I took from everything you just said, which is that this is an unfair, imbalanced burden that black people have to shoulder. And the least that we could do is struggle through it as best as best we can and ask those questions. What we do is get that documentation so that there's no speculation. And that is what we try to apply it towards here to actually figure out what the hell happened. I feel you on that. What I'm trying to say here is that the fact that we don't know what Wendy Mesley said is because Wendy Mesley doesn't want us to know. Absolutely. There is one person who was there. There is one person who we know was there who could tell us. That's right. Well, no, there were many more. And like I said, they're but not they don't have the power. They don't have the power to tell us. Right. But and I'm sorry to interrupt, but there is a snitch hunt right now at the CBC where young producers, it is suspected that somebody stabbed her in the back and it is divisive and and there's a reckoning happening and it is uh young producers and it's racialized producers who are being suspected by powerful people at the cbc if there's one thing i want to clear up i want to clarify desmond that when we got a tip that led us to reporting that story 
we were not contacted by anyone who worked on her show. All I can say, Jesse, is people are proving the point when they call somebody who exposes racism on the workplace a snitch. They're proving the point. They're saying, shut your mouth. That's a culture in Canada, period. It's not just a Canadian media thing. That's how racism and white supremacy functions. But yeah, the person who knows what they said is Wendy Mesley. And the fact that we have to play this game. So Wendy came out with a statement before CBC apparently told her to stop talking, right? And her statement apologized for comments that she herself wouldn't clarify. Now, there are people who want to defend a white woman for comments that they don't know she said or not by telling other people, well, you don't know what she said or not. I'm willing to defend her even though I don't know. But what's important is that you who are angry at her, you don't know. No, we're insulted that Wendy won't just say what she said and then Mm -hmm. deal with it. That's actually how all of this could have been avoided. And further than that, it could have been avoided if she was a professional on the job and didn't say a word that has been used for centuries to denigrate black people. Again, I am assuming the word. I don't give a fuck at this point. Like, these are the games that people want us to play to gaslight us into oblivion instead of dealing with white supremacy. So I'm, I'm really good. I know what you said, Wendy, even if you won't tell us what you said. And I don't need you to say it into my ears as a black person. Like, that's where this goes beyond journalism, Jesse. I got to live in a world where white people can be like, but you don't know what I said and hold it over me. This is ridiculous that we're even playing these games and that we're giving credence to somebody who's supposed to be a professional journalist being like, I won't even tell you what I said. She could have put it in the original statement and then it said, I need to step away and recognize the consequences of whatever I'm doing. So I'm going to clear out my own desk. I'm going to peace out for a little bit and I'll talk to you guys soon. And even if Wendy Mesley had done that, people would still be saying that she got canceled. People would still be saying that she was afraid of the mob because people can't imagine a world where white people take their own responsibility for racism. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp, therapy online that has served over 3 million people around the world and BetterHelp is available here in Canada. A lot of people have various blocks or reasons why they don't just reach out for that help. And one thing you'll hear people say is they just don't have the time. I would like to mount a different uh, argument here, which is that if you are talking to a mental health professional, if you're if you're chatting with somebody about your life and about your priorities, you can clear away a lot of the clutter. You can actually find yourself with more time because you have a better sense of what's important to you. Like it's an investment that can pay off even in that practical way of, of organizing your life a bit better. These are some of the advantages in, in the long run of having something like BetterHelp in your life. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. And because you listen to the show, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. Once again, it's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by AG1. Listen, taking care of your health is not always easy, but it should at least be simple. That is why for months now, I start every day by drinking AG1. I take a scoop of this green powder, I mix it in a canister with water, shake it up, and I drink it. I get hydrated and I get energized and focused and ready to take on the day knowing that I have vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics and a lot more. These are things that science tells us we need. They are also things that I don't necessarily get every day outside of my AG1. Listen, if there's one product that I'm going to recommend that will help you elevate your health, it's AG1. And that is why I have been partnered up with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. Try it now and you'll get a free welcome kit that includes a shaker bottle, canister, a metal scoop, along with five free travel packs. You'll get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3 and K2 along with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com slash CanadaLand. That is drinkag1.com slash CanadaLand. Check it out. Desmond, on this program, we try to uh, duly note things that require uh, and deserve more attention than they've received. Desmond, what do you have to duly note? I have been following, as we've seen reporting, on three recent deaths in the greater Toronto area involving the police. The death of DeAndre Campbell, who in April was shot and killed by a Peel police officer inside of his own home after he called the police for help. 
the death of 29-year-old Regis Korczynski Paquette, who fell 24 stories to her death after, we understand, having interacted with several police officers right before she died. She fell from a balcony in High Park in Toronto, and that's being investigated by the SIU, as is the DeAndre Campbell situation. And the third is the killing of Ijaz Chowdhury, a 62-year-old man with schizophrenia who was shot by Peel police over the weekend. In every single one of the cases that I have just mentioned, the normal process has occurred where the special investigations unit comes in. They're supposed to be independent of police. They say, we're investigating now. And usually that means that everybody's supposed to stop talking, let the investigation proceed, and then we'll get the you know answers that we're seeking as to what happened. In every one of these three cases this time, what has happened is that the Toronto Sun has published stories about apparent police sources who want the public to know what the real story about these killings and deaths is. I find this very interesting. And Joe Warmington has been one of the people behind this, but obviously Joe Warmington is not the publisher of the Toronto Sun. This is a really big decision to essentially, in my view, subvert a public investigation by allowing police sources to tell the public what they want us to know. So I think it's really bad that the Toronto Sun is doing this. I wanted to bring it to people's attention because it's highly unethical and a severe insult to the families of these people who have died. It's just so disgusting to open the pages of newspapers and see this from people who will then publicly say, we need to all wait until the facts are in. So when you're a so-called media organization, but you're doing that kind of work for the police, you're not doing journalism. I think that this, though, Jesse, extends beyond the Toronto Sun saying we've got anonymous police sources and we'll put them out into the open. Like, that's obviously egregious. But I've also noticed things like Mark Saunders has talked a lot about the Regis Korczynski Paquette case and has put a lot of his own information and narrative out into the public when he usually is the person being like, I am not allowed to comment on these things. So now we know that's a lie. But I think people should pay attention to these disclosures by police, whether it be through anonymous sources like the Toronto Sun or in public ways like Mark Saunders giving out information about the Regis Korczynski Paquette case. They're doing it to control the narrative. They're doing it, I think, to subvert the investigations. And the media has to really pay attention to how it reports on those things. The media should be asking, for example, why do police officers who usually tell us they can't comment on these investigations choose to comment sometimes? Is that really because the law is stopping them or is it something else going on? Uh, are they choosing when to speak and not to speak? I just think that the media sometimes wittingly, as with Warmington, and sometimes unwittingly, as with, say, publishing Saunders' stuff, is just doing police public relations. That, that, that's straight up kind of what ends up happening, and we need to be more aware of it. It is absolutely within the media's purview, within journalists' purview, when the cops clam up and they say, oh, don't ask any questions, no one's going to talk, the SIU is on this, we should be trying to find out what happened. But when a, a, an anonymous police or you know, hiding behind anonymity is feeding you information, that is not investigating what actually happened. Duly noted. I want to duly note an absolutely bonkers story reported by the National Post and later by others. Home invasion in London, Ontario, a possible targeted killing of Liberian warlord. So apparently what happened is uh, four men broke into the home of one Bill Horace, three of them in, in hoodies and surgical masks. Neighbors then saw the uh, homeowner like stumbling out of the house, shot dead on the street. And Bill Horace, 44 years old, just happens to be a former general of the National Patriotic Front of Liberia under Charles Taylor. And this report goes on about just what role this guy played. He, he, he led this infamous uh, just death crew. They, they called themselves the Marines, who were, had a reputation for brutality that stood out even among Taylor's rebels. He served as a commander of a contingent of Taylor fighters called the Marine Division, overseeing a sprawling area of operations. In a civil war characterized by atrocities, the Marine Division carried a singular reputation for depredations, and their general was just like, I don't know, assassinated in his London, Ontario home? 
who did that? I mean, I, a lot of people might have wanted to do that, but who did it? It's, it's just something that I, I, I read and uh, would love to know more about. Duly noted. Desmond, uh, the last thing I want to talk with you about today is just this, like, shocker of a story that came out uh, from McLean's that posits, it, it basically makes the case that the shooter in Porta Peak, Nova Scotia, was an RCMP informant. Or at least it is strongly suggestive that that is the case. This is something that, like, feels like it may have been on some sort of message board conspiracy theory, but... There is a certain amount of evidence and a whole lot of speculation. Uh, I'll try to summarize it. The, the case that Gabriel Wartman uh, was an RCMP informant is based on, it's largely based on this videotape, two videos that McLean's obtained of Wartman withdrawing almost a half a million dollars from Brinks. Okay, so that's not where we go to get money. Uh, it, it's something that, according to McLean's, it's not an option available to private banking customers. He had some CIBC affiliate account, but he didn't go through the bank, the retail bank, through, to a bank teller. He went to Brinks and took out the cash there. And McLean's tells us that is consistent with how the RCMP pays its informants. It's not conclusive in this report if that's just like, if there's any other possible explanation as to how he could have withdrawn money from Brinks. McLean says that that's, that's a major piece of why they feel he might be. They also tell us that he had criminal buddies. He had social relationships with the Hells Angels and with a neighbor who uh, just finished serving part of a seven-year sentence for drug and firearm offenses linked to La Familia, a Mexican cartel. And I guess they just sort of like weave it like, hey, it would explain a lot if he was an RCMP informant, you know, like it would explain like why was the RCMP's response to this killer on the loose so shitty? You know, why didn't they use the emergency alert system to tell everybody in the province that there's a killer on the loose? Why did they fail to heed the early warnings before the shooting that he had these illegal firearms? Or why did they fail to charge him for domestic abuse when they knew about that? They'd been warned about him. They had all kinds of opportunities. Why did they put out like low level alerts to cops that, oh, there's a guy on the loose who might be in like a fake RCMP car when they knew he was actually an armed killer on the loose and they could have gotten people's attention up uh, to a much higher degree? Why, why, why? Well, if he was an RCMP informant, uh, that might explain all of this. The problem with that, Desmond, is that a lot of that can just as easily be explained by RCMP incompetence, indifference, and idiocy, which is substantiated because, you know, this is the same RCMP where two RCMP officers showed up at a fire hall where people were sheltering from this killer, and they shot up the fire hall. So I can, I can very easily believe that the RCMP were just really bad at this, but... I don't know. And there's this other part of the story, Desmond, where he's like stopped by the cops for like a, a speeding violation in rural Nova Scotia at 6 p.m. And people are saying they're not doing a radar on some side street. Like that's how RCMP connects with informants. You pretend that you're pulling them over for speeding and then you can give them information or, you know, or you can you can try to make a display that they're 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 on opposite sides because if he was an RCMP informant, why would we be giving him a speeding ticket, I guess, is the idea. Even with this suggested theory that McLean's is putting forth, I still don't have a good narrative. I still don't understand what the hell happened. Like, how does that explain why he went and killed 22 people? Like, he was trying to escape, but then he couldn't because of the pandemic, because he was trying to escape because his cover had been blown. But, like, when you get to the point of where he's just killing people and burning down homes, I don't know what connection to make or what the inference is. What do you make of this mess? The really, really, like, base-level takeaway of this incident and all of the suffering that this man was able to cause for me is that the police lie all the time. Even when they're giving information about 22 people being killed by this man, they're giving out misinformation. They're giving out straight up lies. Your summary just now of all the questions that you have, if you look at how the police in their various communications have chosen to answer these, you see that in many cases, they're either lying or trying to give partial or misleading information. The police were asked straight up, Jesse, from the beginning of this, on the very first day that they did media, they were asked whether or not Gabriel Wartman was known to the police. They said no. They said no. They said no. They said no. Then they said, well, we're still early in the investigation, but I don't have any information to that uh, degree. And their actual acknowledgement of whether or not police knew this man 
has seemingly now shifted to the point of, well, there's no evidence that we ever had a special relationship, I think was the last very interesting quote that I saw. He had no special relationship. What was the relationship? And again, I must draw people's attention to the idea that a black person stopped for no reason in their own community in Nova Scotia will be forever known to the police through the practice of carding. That is exactly the point of it, is to put that mark of being under police watch and suspicion on you as a black person. But we see that no matter what Gabriel Wartman did, the police are telling us, now we didn't know him. We had no reason to suspect him of anything. We didn't know he was stockpiling weapons. We didn't know that he was stockpiling replica RCMP cars or replica RCMP uniforms. We didn't know anything about that. We didn't know he was abusing his partner. We didn't. We we are fucking incompetent. How could we have known any of these things? That is actually really their argument, and I don't believe them. They're lying about the fact that they had no information or previous knowledge of who this man was. I just my own reason in this world tells me that that's not true. They're not disclosing exactly how they knew him, but they don't want us to know exactly. I have other questions uh, in addition to the ones that you just brought up too, though. And my big one that you didn't mention is, why did the RCMP say that Gabriel Wartman was taken into custody on the morning that they later reported that he was dead? Yeah, this is such a huge thing, Jesse. It's like it's so fundamental and people don't think about it because, again, they let the police, as I said, and my, my duly noted, they let the police dictate the narrative. There is no law except what the police tell a lot of people and they let the police make the rules as they go along. What am I talking about? If you can say that somebody is in your custody as the police and everybody again, in a reasonable way, will believe that that means they're alive. And then you can later just say as the police, actually, they were dead. They were dead the whole time. Oh, yeah. I, I flagged that right at the beginning. And it's sort of it's sort of fallen away as a question. But the, the, and the early news reports were confused as a result, because like any reasonable person, he's in custody. And then you find that he's dead. So then it was reported he was taken into custody and then later died. And then what follows from there reasonably is like, so did you kill him once he was in custody? Like, when was he shot before or after he was arrested? What the hell happened here? Well, there was no media present on the scene. The RCMP were writing this narrative themselves. And, you know, Tim Bousquet and others have been interrogating this and picking at it. And things are coming out like in little bits and pieces. But we still don't know what the hell happened there. That is really one of the central problems that I have with the media industry in Canada is its forgetfulness. It's almost routine, rehearsed and practiced forgetfulness. Um, it's not just like the media just kind of flubs their job on something like Gabriel Wartman. Getting to the core of why the police lie to us all the time is a really, really scary and kind of um, reality unwinding, reality destroying kind of experience. And a lot of us, I would say the vast majority of us in the Canadian media landscape are not prepared to do that. So yeah, we just kind of forget that there is a mass killing and we go back to talking about, you know, like we need more police to enforce coronavirus measures instead of like, you know, public health. You know, we need poor police on our transit system, transit system losing money. We need more police in our schools. Like and the media, will, again, will play with these ideas like they're just neutral ideas when all of these ideas are about reinforcing police power. The media should know better. Most of us do know better. But who really wants to take on the police, Jesse? It's not the most fun. Desmond, that is Canada Land Shortcuts for today. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Jesse. Listen, it's never been easier to support us and get ad-free versions of our shows. Just click on the link in the show notes. And for five bucks a month, you'll be helping us in getting ad-free Canada Land. You can email me at jesse at canadalandshow.com. I read everything that you send. We're on Twitter at Canada Land, and our website is canadalandshow.com, and everybody needs to go listen to Commons this week. Just trust me, go listen to Commons this week. Desmond, where can people find you? I am often on Twitter at Desmond Cole, and you should really find me in the pages of a book that I have written called The Skin We're In, A Year of Black Resistance and Power by Doubleday Books, which talks about a lot of my work, and I'm a really proud person right now to be able to say that that book is the number one nonfiction book in Canada. 
and I put a lot of work into it. So I would love for people to find me in the pages of that book and you can get it everywhere. Congratulations on that, by the way. This episode is produced by David Crosby. Our managing editor is Andrea Schmidt. Syndication is by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca.